is. So he lays siege to the city of Jerusalem. He surrounds it with his army, and he's just going to wait. He's going to starve them out. Well, a couple of months into the siege, Jehoiakim dies. So then a new king, Jehoiachin, the guy from verse 2, he ends up coming on the throne. He realizes the situation's hopeless, so he just kind of resigns. He gives up. And because he surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar is, is more or less merciful uh, to the people of Israel this time. He doesn't burn down the city. He doesn't destroy the temple. But he also doesn't want them to rebel against him again. So he decides that he's going to kidnap Jehoiachin. He's going to take him as prisoner and haul him back to Babylon. But along with that, he does some other things too. So for example, he breaks into the temple and he steals a bunch of the sacred artifacts of the temple and he marches them back to Babylon. And again, think about how the people of Israel would have, have responded to that. This, this is the temple. This is where God's physical presence lives with them. And Nebuchadnezzar comes in and takes all the sacred stuff out and marches it out of the city as a way to say, you know what? Your God's not all that strong. He can't even keep his own stuff safe, right? I broke into his house and took it all. Who's God's really in charge now? Booyah! I mean, that's kind of why he's doing this, to intimidate them. And then beyond that, he also takes a bunch of the people who are there in the city and hauls them off into exile. 2 Kings 24 says that he carries off all the officers and fighting men and all the skilled workers and artisans, a total of about 10,000 people. So only the poorest people of the land were left. Well, it, it's that group, it's those 10,000 people who are hauled off into exile that Ezekiel is talking about in verse 1, where he says, I was among the exiles, right? These are the Jewish people who are forced to live as prisoners in the land of Babylon. So with that in mind, let's read verses 2, or three, two and 3 again and see if it, it fits into the overall story a little bit better with that background information. He says, on the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, right? It's been five years since he got hauled off into exile. That's the day when the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. Okay, so how old was Ezekiel in, first, in verse 1? 30, okay. So that means if he's been in exile for five years, he was 25 years old when he gets hauled off into exile. But he spent five years uh, living as a prisoner. And at this moment, he's in essentially a refugee camp next to the Kabar River in Babylon. And most scholars think the Kabar River was actually an, an irrigation canal outside the capital that was built and maintained by slave labor, by people like the Jewish exiles who were living under the thumb of the Babylonian Empire. So that, that's the historical situation for this day when Ezekiel has this vision. But, but to make sense of what he sees, there's one other little detail we've got to pay attention to for a second. Um, did you notice that the author, they went out of their way to talk about what Ezekiel's job was and who his dad was? You know, Ezekiel's a priest. He's the son of Buzi, who's also a priest. Well, why is that a big deal? Well, again, in the Old Testament, the job of priest was not something that, you know, like, I think I'll be interested in being a priest. I'm going to apply for that. No, it stayed in the family, right? The, the priesthood was passed from father to son. So Ezekiel's dad was a priest. He was going to be a priest. And priests played an enormous role in the, the life of the people, right? They literally were the people who stood between the God of Israel, Yahweh, and his people. They were the ones who offered sacrifices in the temple. So if the people had sinned, it was the priest who, who physically could offer a way for them to come back into a right relationship with God. They were the people who took care of the temple and maintained it. Now, all of the things that the priests had to do was so important. If you stop and think about it, to, to do that, the priest had to be physically present in the temple. Right? Being a priest was not something you could do remotely. It's not like you're like, well, I'm just going to zoom into the sacrifice today or something like that. No, you had to physically be there in the temple, which raises an interesting question for somebody like Ezekiel, right? What do you do if you're a priest? And you're in exile a thousand miles away from the temple. Like, what, what does that mean for your job? 
And it's also significant that they spend a little bit of time talking about the age of Ezekiel, right? The verse first, the first verse goes out of its way to point out that he's 30. And in fact, a lot of scholars, when they look at the Hebrew construction there, they say, okay, maybe this isn't just his 30th year. Maybe this is actually happening on his 30th birthday. And that's really significant, that whole being 30. Because the Old Testament book of Numbers, which gives instructions about the priesthood and what that means, it talks about the fact that priests only exercise the office of priests. They only work that job between the ages of 30 and 50. That's when they were eligible to work in the temple. Okay, now, how old was Ezekiel when he was hauled off into exile? He was 25. So try to picture what the first 25 years of his life would have been like. Right, for 25 years, he knows what his career is, right? So he has been training to be a priest. He knew everything there was to know about the temple. There was all sorts of training they had to go through as far as learning how to sacrifice the animals, the intricacies of the law. How do they teach that to the people? So he's been preparing for this, looking forward to his 30th birthday, the day that he is going to start this, this job that God has prepared and that he's been working towards his whole life. So his whole life, he's waiting for this job. He gets to start on his 30th birthday. But his 30th birthday rolls around, and instead of going to the temple to, you know, clock in for his first shift, he's a thousand miles away. He can't do the job that he's been training for his whole life. Instead of being in the temple, he's sitting on the banks of a lousy irrigation canal in the blistering sun in the plains of what is now modern-day Iraq. Like, this has got to be the most disappointing birthday ever. I mean, think about that. Have you ever had a date that you're like, you're really looking forward to? I mean, I was trying to think, okay, what would it be? What, what helps people get into the mind of Ezekiel? And the closest thing I could think of, and this is not a, a good parallel by any means, but for us, one of those birthdays that we really look forward to is our 15th birthday. At least it was in South Carolina, because in South Carolina, when you turn 15, that's the day you can get your driver's license. So for me, I had that date, February 17th, 1991, circled on my calendar for years, right? I was looking forward to this moment where I was going to enjoy kind of this new level of freedom. And, you know, you're like one step closer to adulthood and autonomy and all these things. So as that date was coming, I mean, I got the little DMV manual and, you know, I'm reading it. I'm studying. I mean, I would beg my parents at night to take me to the high school because the parking lot was big, but it was empty at night. I'm like, let, let me practice. Come on, let me do this. I want to be ready for that test. I mean, some of you probably did the same thing. So you do this. Imagine that, right? You do all this work. You're ready. You're ready. You're ready. And your birthday rolls around and you show up to the DMV and there's a sign on the door saying they're closed. Even worse, they're not just closed that day. The, the law has changed, and now somebody like you never gets to get a driver's license. Right? All, all the work, the preparation, the training that you've done, it's for naught. And more importantly, the, the dream that you had about what your life was going to look like and what you're going to be able to do, that's not going to happen. And again, it's just a little glimpse maybe into the, the crushing disappointment that Ezekiel must have felt that day. So what kind of song do you sing? at a birthday party, if somebody's going through that. Like, you're probably not going to sing Happy Birthday. Um, my suggestion is that the song you would sing would be a song like what we find recorded in Psalm 137, which is a song that was written actually by the exiles when they were living in Babylon. Look at how it starts out. It's Ezekiel's situation. It starts out this way. It says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion, right? This word for Jerusalem, their homeland. There on the poplar trees, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. 
Well, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Yeah, I think that song just, it, it expresses what likely would have been in Ezekiel's heart and in the heart of so many of the exiles they were feeling. Like, how, how are we supposed to sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? Right? They must have had all sorts of questions running through their head. Where was God? Had he abandoned us? Because after all, God had promised that the people of Israel, they were going to be a great nation. But the Babylonians are in charge now. Right? They had understood that their God was you know, the, the, the God who created the world, who could defeat anybody. And yet Nebuchadnezzar walked into his temple and took all of these sacred objects out. Maybe, gosh, maybe their God isn't quite as strong as they thought he was going to be. And, you know, if God really did love them, he sure didn't seem to be paying much attention to them because year after year after year have gone by and they are still in exile. Um, I was really struck by the way a scholar named Christopher Wright kind of described what a lot of those exiles must have been feeling. So let me read this quote. We actually put it in your, your sermon notes too so you could take it with you. He says this, For many Israelites, Yahweh was defeated, disabled, distracted, and certainly very, very distant. There is no reason to imagine that Ezekiel would have been immune to these doubts and questions. For five years, he had mourned and wondered and questioned. Five years is a long time for a refugee. So that's where Ezekiel is at the start of this book. He's, he's asking this question, this, where, where are you, God? Why, why am I all alone, and how am I going to find my way out of this? But it turns out that God isn't distracted, and he is definitely not distant, and Ezekiel was about to find that out in a very powerful way. Because remember, again, at the end of verse 1, he gave this hint, hey, on this day, I have this vision of the Lord. So if you go to verse 4, let's take a look and see what that vision is all about. So he says, I looked, and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. And at the center of that, there's this fire that looked like glowing metal. And in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Uh, their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their, on their four sides, they had human hands, which is kind of gross. Um, all four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox, but each also had the face of an eagle. Now, to be fair, I did warn you that there's some really weird stuff in this book, and it takes all of four verses before you jump right into it. So Ezekiel has this, this vision, and if you keep reading the details, they, they just get stranger as you go. But I think it's important to notice that while this was weird to us, it's not like Ezekiel saw this and was like, oh, this is a normal everyday thing. No, it was strange and disturbing for him as well. In fact, it's interesting, if you look at the, the Hebrew that was written, it, the Hebrew in this passage is, it's very disjointed. Like, it, it's, it's almost like not quite grammatical. Like, you get the sense that Ezekiel is just overwhelmed by what he's seen. And words and grammar and comma and all that stuff, it just doesn't quite contain everything that he's going through. And just looking at the description of it, it's not really a surprise that he's overwhelmed. I mean, look at what he sees. He's sitting out there in the middle of the desert, and he sees this storm approaching. And it's not just any storm. It turns out it's this massive thunderstorm. Now, how many of you guys have ever been in a massive thunderstorm? And let me just go ahead and say, we love a lot of things about living in Oregon. 
But if you are a native Oregonian, you have no idea what this is talking about. Really, when, whenever I'm out here and the weather's like, oh, thunder in the forecast, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, sure. No, but if you've ever lived in the Midwest, you've had a different experience, right? I, I mean, we lived in Oklahoma for a number of years. There were some thunderstorms where literally there was so much lightning, like you didn't need a flashlight. You could walk around in the dark and make your way. There was a thunderstorm. The thunder was so powerful, it knocked pictures off of our wall. Like, that's the kind of storm that he's talking about. And remember, he's not, you know, safely indoors under the roof looking at. He's outside, and this thing is rolling his way. So as intimidating as that must have been, then he makes the, the you know, he looks into the storm, and he sees that the middle of the storm, there's like this glowing ball of fire. And inside this glowing ball of fire, there are these really weird creatures that are mixes of animals and human, and there is a lot we could go into about the symbolism of the different faces. In fact, that's one of the things that I hope we can get into in those deep dive seminars. But what I want to draw your attention to in this is just how much time he spends pointing out that they've got wings, specifically wings that reach out and touch the wings of the other. In fact, if you skip down a few verses, right, you get down to verse 22, you realize that the, the four living creatures are, it's almost like they make a square, the way they're standing, and their wings stretch out at 90 degree angles, which I, I guess is behind them, but maybe not because I mean, they've got a face going in each direction, so I don't know. Their wings end up making the sides of this square, and those wings make a square that is the base that a platform sets on. And then verse 22 says that sitting on top of the platform was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. And I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire and a brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. All right. Now, what, what the heck is going on here? I, I think one of the things that we need to do to make sense of this is we've got to remember Ezekiel's background. We have to remember that he is a priest. And when he sees this sort of amazing presence sitting just above the places where the wings meet, he's reminded of something back in the temple. So again, remember that the temple back in Jerusalem is where God promised that his physical presence would actually be with the people of Israel. But it wasn't general. It's not like he was just all over the temple. It was at a very specific place in the temple. Right? There was an interior room called the Holy of Holies. And inside that room was the Ark of the Covenant, which is a, a box, essentially. It's a piece of sacred furniture. And on top of that Ark, there was a lid. And the lid had two cherubim, these statues of these kind of creatures with wings. And the wings are, are stretching out towards each other and reach each other. So if you have ever seen Indiana Jones and the Last Ark, right, this is their guess of what the Ark of the Covenant looks like. Uh, if you've also seen this movie, you realize you don't want to take the lid off this ark if you're a Nazi. It doesn't end well. Um, but here's the thing. What's the big deal about the lid and the wings of those cherubim? Well, the book of Exodus, when God's describing, here's how you need to build the ark and make the lid and all of this. After he talks about the lid, he says this. He says, there, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you. Right? God had promised that his physical presence was going to be with his people just above where the wings meet. So then Ezekiel takes that knowledge that he knows from being a priest and knowing the law, and he looks and he sees this vision where these crazy creatures with wings that meet, and just above where the wings meet, there is this amazing, glorious presence that he can't even describe, and he gets it, right? He understands what's going on. It is God's presence that he is seeing just above the wings and the creatures in this vision. Now he realizes, okay, wait a minute, God's presence is supposed to be in the temple in Jerusalem. 
But now, it's actually here with him. And that's the conclusion he comes to about what he's seeing. The very end of the chapter, he says this. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Right? What he's seeing is God's presence. It's God's glory. It's with him. God, it turns out, hasn't abandoned his people in their exile. God has actually gone into exile with them. God can meet his people wherever they are. And it's interesting, one of the other things that Ezekiel notices in this vision, we didn't look at this part of the passage, but underneath each of those four living creatures, there's like this wheel, or there's a wheel inside a wheel, and those wheels will let this this sort of contraption go wherever you want to. So if it helps you to think about this way, what Ezekiel is seeing in this vision, it's, it's like an all-terrain four-by-four God-mobile, right? It's, you know, think about the Pope-mobile. It's like the God, like, he can go anywhere, right? And that, that's the picture that he's trying to get out here with the wheels that are inside of the wheels. Like, instead of God's presence now just being physically tied to the temple, it's now on the move, and it can go anywhere. It can come and be with God's people anywhere, even in exile. Right, even on the banks of this irrigation canal. Now, we don't have a place in our lives that is as sacred to us as the temple was to the Jewish people at that time. So there's, there's a little bit of a mental jump that we have to take to get to their, from their experience to ours. But while we may not have a temple like they did, we do often feel what they felt. Right? Have you ever felt like God was distant? Have you ever felt like he was defeated, right? That he was, he was powerless to help you in the situation that you were in? Or have you ever felt like he was distracted? You know, that either he didn't see what you were going through, or even worse, he saw it, and he just didn't care enough to do anything about it? I mean, some of us feel that way now. Some of us, we look at, at, at our marriage or other key relationships in our lives, and we feel like those are in exile. Like, there's just no way that we see how they can thrive. Think about those of us who, you know, we've done our best to raise our kids to know God, and then you see the choices they make as adults move in different directions, and you just kind of wonder, wait, what, what went wrong there? Some of us, we look at where we are in school or with our friends, or, you know, we just graduated. We're kind of trying to figure out what's the purpose of my life, and we feel really alone. We feel in exile. We feel like we don't have an answer to that question. Um, you know, at times in the last year and a half, we've probably all experienced what I was talking about at the beginning of that sermon. Right? We look at the state of our world, our nation, and we're like, okay, clearly, clearly God has got to be distracted if all of this is happening. And sometimes it's just a lot closer to home than that, right? Sometimes we, we watch ourselves say the thing that we said, oh, we're never going to say anything like that again, but we do. Or we do the thing that we promised ourselves that we were going to stop doing. And we just, we just see the brokenness inside of us. We, we see our own inability to change, and we just feel hopeless and helpless. We feel in exile. Well, if you've ever felt anything like that, this is where God's words to the exiles back then really have a lot to say to us today. Because again, remember, during Ezekiel's like birthday pity party, God showed up and reminded him that he wasn't alone. He hadn't been abandoned. His situation wasn't hopeless. Now, when we look at the situations in our lives, sometimes what we want is God to show up and just fix everything immediately, just change all the stuff that's going on around us. And I'm sure Ezekiel would have loved that too. It would have been great if, you know, in chapter 2, he has this vision and the God says, Ezekiel, today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to magically transport all of the exiles back and the Babylonians are going to be gone. And tonight you're going to clock in in your first shift in the temple. It's going to be great. But he doesn't do that. He didn't change any of his circumstances. Instead, what we realize in our lives 
is that God often works in our lives the way that he worked in Ezekiel's life. He doesn't always start by changing our circumstances. Oftentimes, he starts by offering us himself. Right? He often starts by giving us himself because that, that's where the help and the healing really begins. And you know, all through the rest of the Bible, we see this. The, the New Testament shows that when God saw the continuing struggle of the human race, they just couldn't fix themselves, right? He didn't stay distant. He wasn't distracted. He gave us in Jesus himself. That's why in Matthew's biography, he's listing out these different names of Jesus. And one of the names that he says he should be called is Emmanuel, which means God is with us. I love this passage in Luke's biography when Jesus is teaching and he's healing and the people of Israel see it. They see what they're doing. And you know what they say about him? They look at Jesus and they say, in him, God has come to help his people. Right? That's, the, that's the foundation for the message of Ezekiel that we're going to look at for the next few weeks. Even when God's people hit rock bottom, like even when they are dealing with the consequences of the messes that they have made, God doesn't abandon. No, God goes into exile with his people. He's, he's with them, and that is enough. And that is what I have found to be true, in especially, I'd say especially in the difficult seasons of life. I, mean, I remember I shared this story with somebody not too long ago, but several months ago, I, mean, I, I, was, I was just done with all of this. I, mean, I was done with just all the stuff that we're all juggling with now. I just wanted it to be over. We'd just gotten like a child tax credit or something, and I was like, okay, if I quit now, it, there's got to be some place that Martha and the kids, maybe we can move to like the Australian outback where we won't have to deal with any of this stuff. You know, there's got to be some place we can go and just escape from all of this. So I, I was thinking all of that, um, and I had the opportunity to go over to the coast for the day. And, you know, I'm driving down the coast, and I'm just I'm thinking through all this stuff, and I'm just, I mean, I'm just ready for this all to be done. And as I was heading down the coast, I stopped at Cape Perpetua. A lot of you have probably been there. And there's this part in Cape Perpetua where you can hike back, and there's this giant spruce tree back there. You know, some of you guys have probably seen this. It's almost 200 feet tall. They say it's 600 years old. And I hiked back to it, and I was looking at that tree, and I was praying. And to be real honest, the content of my prayer was basically just me complaining to God about all of this crap I didn't want to have to deal with anymore. And as I'm doing that, I just was completely overcome by the realization that God was with me. I mean, that he was, he was really with me. And, you know, I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm kind of complaining as I pray, and I think about that tree. And I thought, okay, 600 years, how many seasons of drought and seasons of abundance has that tree made it through? You know, how many fires and storms and dangers has it survived? And I just, I just felt God's presence reminding me that if he could help that tree make it, he could absolutely do the same for me because I wasn't alone. Right? The God who created the universe, the God who could make a tree that's 600 years old and 200 feet tall, he, he was with me. He was not just off somewhere, locked in some temple in the Middle East where I could not access him. He was right there with me. I was not alone. And while none of the circumstances around me changed in that moment, Something inside of me did. I realized that God was with me and it was enough. And friends, that is, that is our deepest hope for you today and in this season. You know, at Suburban, we like to say that our, our mission, we're trying to help every person that we meet encounter God in such a way that they become fully alive in Christ. And we believe that we have a part to play in that. We can make intentional decisions to, to do things that help us grow in our relationship with Christ 
our relationship with the church, and our relationship with the community around us. That those things, those choices, help us partner with the Spirit of God so that we become fully alive in Him. And my deepest, deepest hope for these times when we gather together is that we could all truly connect with Christ in these moments. That you would remember that the God who created the universe, the God who holds it all together with His power, wants to be with you. He wants to do that today, wherever you are. And you know, for those of us who are here, who are followers of Jesus, like we know this is true up here at a head level. But there are times and there are seasons where maybe we are tired or worn out or discouraged, and we need some help to move that from here to where we experience it here. Where we experience the reality of God's presence, the reality of Emmanuel, God is with us in our day-to-day lives. And you know, for those of us who are here and are maybe exploring Christ, we trust that in these moments together, that you would feel the reassuring touch of God's hand, uh, just breaking through whatever emotional, whatever spiritual isolation you might feel so that you can know the truth that God is with you no matter where you are. So to, to close out our time together, um, the musicians are going to come back up, and we're going to prepare to take communion together in just a moment. Um, but before we do that, I'm going to pray, and, and we're going to have just a, a little bit of time and space where there's just going to be some music going. And I want to invite you into a time of prayer and reflection to really think about the message of Ezekiel and how that touches your life today. And what you need to remember, right, is that unlike Ezekiel, we have the privilege of living on this side of the resurrection, right? Because of the work of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit, what Ezekiel saw in that vision is available to each one of us every day, every moment, if we simply ask for it. God's power is with us. God has come to help his people. And the way he begins to do that is by giving us his presence. So that's why we're ending up taking communion, because that's the reminder that we have of the gift of God's presence to be with us. So we'll pray. And I just want to invite you in the moments that follow to take communion whenever you want to as the music is playing. And then we'll close out our time together by singing a final song together. So would you pray with me? God, we are so grateful that even in the moments where we don't see you, even in times when we don't feel you, that we are never alone, that you are with us. God, we are so, so grateful that your presence is not locked in a box in a temple somewhere on the other side of the world, but you are right here by our side. That through the power of the Holy Spirit, you live in us, enabling us to live the lives that you've called us to live. So God, in these moments that follow, I just pray that you would help each of us know that you're here. And if there are things we need to hear from you, would you open up our ears so that we would hear that? If there are things that we need to say to you, would you remind us of that and would you, would you prompt us to reach out to you because you're here and you love us and you're listening. As we take together uh, communion together in a moment, Lord, if we choose to do that, would the very bread and the cup remind us of the sacrifice that you made that you to give us yourself, to not stay distant, but to provide a way for us to come back into the life that you have for us. Help us respond, Lord, to how you're moving as you see fit. Amen.